Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Emma Perry, the Managing Director of Bevan. Bevan is a social enterprise supporting the health and well-being of people who are homeless or in unstable accommodation. This is a brilliant and inspiring conversation. What an amazing organisation Bevan is. Emma and I talk about the work Bevan does, providing GP and wraparound health support to the most vulnerable. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of specific challenges in this work requiring the practitioners to bring all of their compassion, resilience and determination to the job. The Bevan bus, a fully equipped mobile medical unit, is a great example of how you sometimes have to bring the service to the person. The COVID pandemic has not made this task any easier and Emma shares some of the wonderful stories of how people have been helped and supported to lead healthier and more fulfilling lives. We also talk about some of the innovations developed during COVID, which the team at Bevan have maintained, such as a greater focus on digital access to healthcare, as well as peer advocacy networks. And finally, we talk about what motivates and drives Emma. It's the all important question of why. Why am I doing this? I love the answer that Emma gives, and I think you will too. So let's hear from Emma. Emma, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, We've met each other before but for the listeners it'd be great if you could just say a little bit about who you are and a bit about your background. Thanks Andrew so yeah I'm Emma Perry I'm Managing Director of Bevan which is an inclusion health service uh, based in Yorkshire. Great and what did you do before that? So um, originally I started my career in local authorities particularly around community development work um, but very quickly found the social enterprise sector. So I was um, fortunately seconded into um, a social enterprise called, which is now called Big Life Group, where I spent kind of best part of 20 years um, delivering predominantly children and family services, but in quite a wide context. Um, and then subsequently from Big Life Group, moved into working particularly in education around multi-academy trusts, and then found my way to Bevan from, from that. Wow, that, that's a real mix. Um, listeners of the podcast will, will know Big Life because we've had Edna Robinson on, yeah. who I'm sure you know very well. Um, yeah. So that's a real mix, isn't it, to go from Big Life to Academy Trusts. What took you on that journey? Because that's quite a change. Yeah, so um, during my time at Big Life, um, I kind of developed the children and family uh, division there. So Okay. And started off where it was just kind of with one nursery and eventually grew to having several nurseries, children's centres and also schools. Um, and that was very much driven from local communities and the needs that they were identifying and, you know, kind of wanting to find those solutions. So that's kind of where I ended up into multi-academy trusts. And 
in terms of my time with Big Life, I'm still chair of their multi-academy trust board. Now they still um, deliver schools in, within local communities. Um, and, and part of that for me was around wanting to develop an antenatal onwards model. So it was literally where you were, it was a very holistic approach to children and family services, whereby literally from antenatal onwards, right the way through to children going to school, we were able to provide a whole range of services um, to make sure that families were properly supported and looked after. Um, I think also my time at Big Life Group, um, because I was also exec director there, so got involved in obviously the wider group work, where it was all around what, what Bevan would now term kind of inclusion health groups, so marginalised people, marginalised individuals and communities. So that's where my kind of real passion lay around kind of social injustice and um, being able to tackle that. So that that's the golden thread that runs through your experiences that focus on tackling social injustices and marginalised people. It's not just children or older people. Or it, it, it's that's the thread. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if you think about that in sort of the context of Bevan, um, for me, you know, the driver for me every day is thinking about the statistic in terms of, you know, if you've got somebody who's homeless, the average age of death is 45 for a woman and sorry 43 for a woman and 45 for a man and you just kind of think how can that be right you know in in a so-called civilized society you know it's wrong on every count so yeah for me it's around social injustice the fact that that is all preventable um and it's around you know what we can do to be tackling that on a day-to-day basis so i want to ask you specifically about bevan and before i do when did you when did you join Bevan? So I'm only 18 months in. <laughs> so entirely within the COVID period. Uh, yeah, I I deliberately um, applied for the job during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Is that because you knew that there was a big challenge there and this was something that was really going to uh, impact? Yeah, the, huge, that group huge of vulnerable people. Yeah, so at the time of um, finding the role at Bevan, um, I was working for um, a, co- a cooperative um, multi-academy trust. And, I, you know, at the time, obviously, I hugely believed in education as a driver for creating change in communities. So, you know, I was loving what I was doing and, you know, opening new schools in disadvantaged areas, which, again, is something that I've obviously been really passionate about. But when I saw the role at Bevan, given the backdrop of the pandemic, and having worked with those marginalised um, individuals and communities for a long time, I could absolutely understand what that organisation must be facing, uh, you know, yeah. in, in global pandemic. So I just couldn't resist applying and, you know, feel lucky on a daily basis that I was successful in getting that role. It's a real privilege. Well, I, I, I think it's a, a extremely impressive because most people I know, I must say, well, I, maybe that's not right, not, not most people, but a lot of people I think have, understandably tried to make their lives as simple and easy as possible over lockdown and over COVID and you seem to have run in the opposite direction to really take on one of the biggest challenges. So we've mentioned Bevan, we know that you're uh, the chief exec there. What exactly does Bevan do, just so people are really clear? Yeah, so um, Bevan is very much around health and well-being, so I kind of use that term deliberately because it is around that real wide approach to um, supporting people's health and wellbeing needs. So in terms of the actual services that we deliver, um, we have primary care focus, which is around our, our GP practices and um, supporting people to access primary care. But the reason that works so well is we've got a whole range of other services that wrap around that. So we have um, outreach teams that are both kind of street-based ha- outreach teams that work from our Bevan buses. Um, we have outreach teams based in contingency accommodation, i.e. hotels where a lot of refugee and asylum seekers are, are accommodated. We have hospital in-reach services. So that's a team that's based in the hospital. Um, and their remit is to help identify people who are homeless, who would either be discharged out onto the streets, which obviously can't happen, or um, you know, can't be discharged because there's nowhere to, to, to actually place them. We also have a whole range of wellbeing services that wrap around all of that. So that, could, that can be all sorts of things, very much based on the needs of our patient cohorts. We have children and family services as well, because obviously we have at least 
in Bradford, for example, a third of our patient list are children and young people. Um, and we also have a peer advocacy and volunteer programme because, again, going back to that whole point of the sort of wider determinants of health in terms of physical and mental health and wellbeing, um, you know, it's around, again, creating opportunity for our patients to move into whether that's employment or um, having purpose um, in other ways through volunteering. We also have linked to our primary care services and what's known as the SAS service, which stands for special allocation. And that's for patients who've been struck off other mainstream GP practice lists. Um, so we provide GP services for them as well. Is that is that struck off because of their their behaviour or? Yeah, I mean that's that's one way of putting it. Quite often, it's around um, you know it is around the behaviour, but again, it's around sometimes those services aren't necessarily structured and set up for people who yeah. might have these complexities. Um, so yes, it, sorry, it, I mean it, it, it was the only way I could think of expressing no, no, it, but I no, I understand no, no, what you mean. Right. Um, so just to, to give everybody an idea of the, the scale of this. So, and I will ask you a bit about your workforce and how it's structured at the minute. Um, but how many is, is homeless, uh, rough sleeping? What's the correct way to refer to, to your client group? Yeah. So we, we kind of refer to it as people experiencing homelessness because okay. within that you will have, um, what there's kind of different elements of it. So you've got your sort of ruthlessness, which is what people refer to as kind of rough sleepers, where, you know, obviously they have no no home, so to speak. You also have kind of houselessness. So that's really around, you know, people who are in temporary accommodation, hostels, B&Bs, et cetera. But then within that, there is a lot as, as well around hidden homelessness. So kind of safer surfing um people who are in insecure accommodation for lots of reasons, whether that's affordability or domestic abuse or, you know, whatever else. So that's one cohort of our patients is that whole raft around um, what you would call people experiencing homelessness. And within that, obviously, there are children and young people as well. But other inclusion health groups are around refugee and asylum seekers, commercial sex workers, um, Roma and traveller communities, it might be people who've experienced criminal justice system, etc. So um it's quite a wide ranging group of people um who who we serve really. And then obviously within that you will have the complexity of people, you know, not just belonging to one of those things. So if you've got somebody who's homeless, for example, with the whole potential comorbidity of being homeless, having a mental health issue, having a drug and alcohol issue, etc. So there can be a lot of complexity there as well. And so whereabouts in the country does Bevan provide these services? So we're Yorkshire based. So yeah. when I first joined Bevan, we had services in Bradford and Leeds. Um, we now have services across um, parts of West Yorkshire and we're also delivering North Yorkshire now as well. So just to get an idea of um, the numbers of people that you, you work with, say in Bradford or, or, or Leeds, how many people would you work with? So our patient list in Bradford is currently around about 6,000 patients. In Leeds, we have about 2,500. But um, what we are experiencing at the moment is quite a growth in those numbers as well, mainly due to um, refugee and asylum seeker communities growing through the contingency accommodation in hotels. And then we're also delivering the similar services in terms of the outreach services in hotels in places like Calderdale and North Yorkshire. So we don't necessarily have a GP practice everywhere where we deliver services. Some of it is around some of that kind of project based or service specific work where we've got particular cohorts of patients. That's really worrying the size of that number there, because I think for a lot of people, particularly people living in London, let's say their uh, experience of homeless people is the person in the sleeping bag outside Waterloo Station. And there's maybe two or three of them and they think that might be the limit of the problem and why can't we just support those people but as you've described it's a much more complex challenge than that hugely so i mean it's and obviously it's really hard for people to um kind of find exact numbers around it because of that kind of hidden homelessness that i kind of described before um but you know it's far far beyond you know those people that you see yeah. you, you explain kind of train stations and sleeping on on the streets etc 
Um, it's, and I think what what's you know one of the things that we're always very mindful of is you know there isn't an inclusion health service in every area because people don't necessarily see the need for one, and yet because yeah. of that hidden homelessness, etc., you know it absolutely does exist. Really fascinating, really fascinating and interesting. So who commissions the work? So predominantly it's um, commissioned by uh, obviously what are now ICBs. Um, so Integrated care boards would have been CCGs beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah in, the, in previous terminology, yeah. So um, they're predominantly the commissioners. We do have... Um, Obviously, the local authorities commissioned some elements of our service, and we also, because of that wraparound um, offer that we find, we know is absolutely crucial to what we deliver, we also um, seek grant funding and other aspects of funding as well to kind of bolster uh, what, what the ICB commission. You see, I, I think that's the real advantage of operating as a social enterprise because you can get, you know, it, it you you have the ability to get that additional funding to do the wraparound stuff and to do other stuff that's not directly commissioned by the taxpayer, let's say. And I think that's the real strength of this as a model. It's hugely important that, and I think just in terms of that as a model for primary care as well, because. Again, if you think about sort of PCNs and how that funding works and, and you know, where we're able to utilise funding is, you know, all any any surplus we make goes back into the services we deliver. So things that I mentioned before, for example, the peer advocacy programme, you know, we're able to afford that because we put our surplus back into what we deliver. Yeah. Um, and absolutely, Andrew, couldn't agree more around that social enterprise model around primary care and what Bevan is. Um, you know, hugely adds value. It's a, it, it's a, it's a really important element of the model for sure. So equally important part of the model is your workforce and who they are and where they come from. So you do primary care, you, you provide GP services. So do these GPs, how, how do they engage with you? Yeah, so we have um, obviously a number of GPs and um Really, for, for those who kind of don't know how sort of primary care works, GPs tend to work on a sessional basis. So we will have GPs who are kind of salaried GPs with Bevan um, and they will work for us for part of the week. They may work elsewhere for other parts of the week. And that actually works really well. We, we've got um, GPs who also work for what was the CCG, now the ICB. So um, and do lots of other roles besides that. It might be training universities, etc. So it really yeah. enhances the value of what we do at Bevan, but also they're able to take that learning from inclusion health into those um, roles as well. So it, it does provide um, a really, a really strong model that. But the GPs would be the first to say that they are just one element of what Bevan delivers. So what yeah. strengthens our workforce is that we have a really multidisciplinary team, both clinical and non-clinical. So within the teams, we have um, roles such as paramedics, we have occupational therapists, healthcare coordinators, social prescribers, um, you know, you name it. it. It's quite a wide ranging team, including, you know, obviously our volunteers and peer advocates who we see very much as part of that team, just as much as, you know, some of our kind of paid employees. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the actual model, that's what gives it the strength because we don't see patients walking through the door and looking at them in a medical way necessarily. Again, you know, as a team, we see those wider determinants of health and well-being. And because we have that wide ranging team, we're able to address somebody's differing needs because people don't walk through the door with one issue. You know, that's not what anyone's life is like. You know, we can't, human beings are complex, aren't we? So, that's the beauty, I think, of the, of the team and um, the way that they collaborate and work together. And this is a problem more widespread across the health system that, you know, for a lot of the wider determinants of health, they're not within the control or influence of the NHS, for instance. You know, the NHS is there to, to provide a service, usually when people reach a crisis point, or actually for a lot of the vulnerable vulnerable people you're talking about it's the wider i mean it's it's the fact that they are roofless houseless you know vulnerable is is the cause of a lot of their issues unless you tackle that root cause 
then how are you supposed to help them in the long term? But for the standard NHS model, doesn't look at that wider picture, as you say. It's more interested in just, right, how do we treat the specific problem that you are presenting with? That person's just going to keep coming back because they're going back into the environment, as you've said, where it's just going to keep happening again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's exactly it. It's us trying to work with people around the kind of root causes in relation to that. And I think, you know, if you think about um, the background of a lot of our patients, you know, we are very much around it being in a trauma informed service. We have to be because, you know, the vast majority of our patients, that's been their experience through life. And that can be, you know, why they've ended up in, in you know, the situation that they're in. Um, and again, you know, that's the strength of our teams kind of working together. And I think in terms of, you know, the issues around accessibility and why obviously you need services like Bevan is if if we have a patient, for example, that goes off radar, our outreach teams are able to go out there and engage and find those people and bring them, you know, back yeah. into those services. So it really is, you know, the strength is in the fact that we've got all those different components that can work together to, to make sure we're doing the best by each one of those patients. And, and do you think health commissioners are, are getting this? Um. I think that um, I think that we should, all, you know, it's a constant battle, really. I think that there are elements and aspects where, yeah, it, it kind of understood. And I think, you know, commissioners that we work with, obviously, we're commissioned because they kind of get that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there are lots of areas where that is absolutely needed because it doesn't exist. And I think yeah. that, um, you know, that's the challenge, isn't it? It's like the reason I'm kind of hesitating in my response there is that I can think of things even where you have inclusion health services, where the wider system still kind of doesn't support that. So, you know, for example, we've just done an evaluation on one of our projects, which is a kind of preconception care project. And part of that, we have psychologists that, that work with us. And, and she did some specific work with um, particularly vulnerable cohort of women. And one of the quotes that um, this particular patient said is, you know, I can't believe I've had, had access to an actual real therapist because they're as rare as Rocky Horse shit was her, you know, expression. <laughs> I thought, yeah, she's absolutely right. And what she was kind of referring to there is, you know, the difficulty, for example, of her being able to access support around her mental health because she had other issues that she was facing. So that whole thing of, well, until you are clean of whatever substance, you can't access that mental health service. And that to me is just so it's just so nonsensical. So I think there are still, you know, obviously areas where there is much more work that needs to be done, much more awareness around how we can be more inclusive and support people yeah. you know that are facing those complexities. So you you've described, for instance, your outreach teams going out and finding people. Now you said that very quickly, but I'm sure that is not an easy job sometimes i'm sure there are a lot of specific challenges involved in supporting the people that you support uh, in terms of where you deliver the services building trust that type of thing yeah massively so i think you know would i listen to and observe kind of our staff team you know i'm i they make me incredibly proud i mean they're so resilient and the fact that, you know that whole thing that we don't give up on people um, and that can take time after time of, you know, trying to encourage, trying to contact those really small steps. But it's that resilience that then, that then pays off. And it very, very much is around relationship building. I mean, we know that in terms of trauma informed care, the absolute fundamental of that is strong relationships and building strong relationships of trust. Um, and I think that that's what our teams, where, regardless of which team they sit in and where they're based, do incredibly well. They know those patients, you know, as individuals. They're interested in them as individuals, um, yeah. and that pays off. That's the bit that enables people to access the services that they need. You know, just to observe you. When I, I spent a fantastic afternoon with our leads outreach team, and you know, to see the relationships they built up with people who, 
you know, there's one lady who um, has got real complex, complex health needs, is living in a tent at the bottom of a high rise block of flats. But the relationship they've built up with her as putting it bluntly, Andrew, is, is saved her legs from having to be amputated because she wasn't accessing any care. You know, she was in a, a terrible state. But our team didn't give up. They, they built that relationship and yeah. enabled her to access that care. And that really is, you know, the difference that the teams make on a day-to-day basis. That's amazing. I mean, that type of story, and I'm sure you've got hundreds like that. Um, so yeah. where do you actually, so just so, so um, listeners can get a, a really clear idea in their heads, generally speaking, or is, is there no generally speaking, is, is there no typical thing? Where would your team members deliver services? Do you go to where the where the people are? Do you try and encourage them into one of your your uh, your premises or how, how does it work generally? It, it, it is. I think this is why it works is it's very much on what that individual needs. So, so right. we do have practices and, you know, there will be a cohort of patients that are able to and, you know, to walk through the door and access, etc. But then obviously we do have patients where that's not what they're going to do initially. So in terms of where we deliver from. I mentioned before about kind of our bed and buses. So we do have um, clinical buses. Yeah, I was going to ask literally. you about the bed and buses, actually. Yeah. What, what, what are they? So it's kind of like um, a converted van. So we've got, um, it's got clinical bed in there. It's got, um, you know, sink, everything we need to kind of deliver. Um, and, and, you know, for example, wound dressing is a big thing for our um, our patient group. So it enables those outreach teams to go find people where they're at and treat them there and then on the spot. It also means that where they do need potentially um, access to GP practice for all those services, by building that relationship at that point, we're able to encourage them to actually go into practice and, and, and be able to make sure that that happens. Um, but also, I think one of the things that our teams do incredibly well is they work very collaboratively, collaboratively easy, not easy to say, um, with other partner, partner agencies. Um, so, again, it's about having those teams wrapped around people to be able to not just look at them in terms of, well, you know, that's what they need from a physical or a mental health perspective, but actually what do they need in terms of other aspects? So, for example, working with housing teams to be able to... Um, support them to be somewhere safe uh, that's right for them. I think also, you know, one of the things that um, we do, because, for example, in Bradford, we've got a wellbeing centre attached to our GP or as part of our GP practice. So, again, we do um, homeless drop-in every Monday afternoon, which whilst they're getting, you know, fed and watered and all the rest of it and a nice cup of tea, they're also able to access a GP appointment at the same time. Yeah. get housing advice at the same time so again that's enabled by developing those relationships wherever we might come across that individual just as you're talking and i'm trying to imagine it i'm just trying to imagine a rough sleeper a homeless person um who, who maybe hasn't had a bath or a shower in a long time trying to go to a normal gp and the looks and you know distance and feeling of completely being excluded they they would have from trying to just go through the normal the normal yeah. process i'm sure there'd be loads of people there who would complain and say that this is terrible they they must feel incredibly excluded and that experience would mean that they would simply say that's not for me absolutely and i think that you know, the biggest thing with, you know, when someone's walking through our door and our, our teams do this incredible, incredibly well is to make people feel welcome, that they yeah. belong there, that, you know, it's for them. It's absolutely about them. And us working with them as well, you know, where we might get things wrong, where we might not be as inclusive as we could be, even as an inclusion health service. You know, we work really closely with our patient group to help us understand well, what more could we be doing you know, how else can we make this work for you, more accessible for you? You know, and that's something that, you know, in terms of kind of co-production and co-delivery, you know, we've worked really hard over the last kind of October months in particular around, you know, that whole peer advocacy bit around our patients supporting us to get things right. And for us then in turn, informing and supporting that wider system to better understand as well. Um 
because you know real example of that again from one of the outreach teams was there was um a young lad who was in a terrible state and he couldn't go to his mainstream gp um for all those reasons that you've just described what are a lot of our patients because they don't have a fixed address will go and try and register with a gp and unfortunately be told that they can't which is completely untrue you do not need an address to register with a gp so again for us as well it's about informing our patients about their rights and entitlements um, yeah. because if we're doing our job correctly they shouldn't stay with Bevan forever they should be enabled to access other services and mainstream services but there is a huge education piece there around, you know, both in terms of our patients understanding their rights, but other services understanding what they're entitled to. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine this was all made 10 times harder over the last two years of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, if you think about, you know, how that impacted people, you know, for, for our patients, you know, like suddenly overnight for the physical doors to be shut. And if you think about a lot of those solutions around primary care, it was for people who were able to pick up a phone or able to go online and book an appointment and, do, you know, do all those things virtually, etc. You know, that's not our, our, our patient cohort. So yeah. I think, you know, Bevan did an incredible job. And I can say that because I wasn't there at the beginning of the pandemic. I joined, obviously, in the middle of it. So in terms of, you know, absolute credit to the team, because what they did in kind of true Bevan style was to really think about, right, in terms of our patients, what are some of those solutions and created some brilliant legacy out of that, actually. So, for example, um, they created a whole peer advocacy-led digital inclusion program on the back of that that was around um some of our patients being trained to support other patients to access devices to have access to data to know how to use it to break down those barriers of being able to use it so where things had to go remote it enabled our patients to still be able to access services and i think again it was that kind of as needs emerged so food banks were no longer accessible so Bevan had to start, you know, responding and, and delivering food parcels to people. Um, things like when we had the everybody in, you know, to some extent, when I speak to colleagues, some of that was slightly easier because all of a sudden you had all of those people under one roof, whereas usually they're so dispersed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it was an opportunity for us to go, go, right, let's see where we're up to with vaccines and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, but again, that wasn't without challenge either um so i think they were incredibly responsive and agile given you know the complexity of the, of the pandemic but i think that for us as an organization you know there's so many crises cost of living crisis you know has it has an impact on the organization as does what's happening you know obviously in terms of access to secondary care and ambulances and all mm. the nhs at the moment so we are constantly having to think about solutions and think about how do we best serve our patient group against the backdrop of all of those things. So you mentioned peer advocacy there, which I know is a term I've heard before, but in your context, what does that mean? And how do you recruit your advocates? Do they do you support them or how, how does that work for you? Yeah, so it's um, a scheme that we developed alongside a partner agency called Groundswell. So um they have It's what sorry, sorry, say that again. Yeah, it's a, it's an organization called Groundswell um, okay. that we work alongside to deliver this. So um basically it they've got a kind of one track record around peer advocacy programs in terms of people experiencing homelessness accessing that. So how it basically works is we will find a cohort of patients who are ready to be peer advocates and that's a really important bit about that kind of readiness and um, train them up and what their role then is is to support other patients to access services so mm. some of that we what we did um as, as i mentioned before in terms of the pandemic was we added a digital element to that 
so our peer advocates are able to advocate in the in the everyday sense of the word in terms of access services but also to be able to train and help people access from a digital perspective as well if they choose okay. to access services in that way in terms of how we recruit we have um, a volunteer program so that's around patients who um might want to volunteer in all sorts of aspects of Bevan um, and we have some amazing volunteers delivering services for on our behalf. When the time is right for them, then they can move into peer advocacy um, and, and obviously there's, there's the training that goes alongside that. We're also at the moment looking at developing that further to have peer researchers so that our patients would then work with other patients to look at how are we doing, how do we improve services, how do we design them in a different way, and again, being part of that delivery as well. Fantastic. I mean, I'm sure you you and your team have got some examples of where you're really proud of an, an outcome that you've achieved for someone. So many. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think for me, probably one of those things is, you know, the increase in people that we now employ who've got lived experience. Um, and I think, again, that's been a real legacy from the kind of volunteer and peer advocacy programme. Um, and ultimately, you know, we want to do much more of that in a safe way, because, again, you know, our patients are people who've experienced trauma and we work every day with people with trauma. So we have to be really careful how we do that and how we support um, both our wider staff team, but also our staff with lived experience to do that. I think that there are so many kind of good news stories and real achievements um, in relation to, again, but people are still doing it that on, a, on a voluntary capacity, but also in paid employment with us as well. Yeah. I feel I feel difficult. I find it hard to talk about that in that it's almost like it's their story rather than rather than mine. But um, yeah, I think that you know when you hear some of the for example, some of our refugee and asylum seekers who have had horrendous journeys to the UK, who are now, you know, being able to do that peer advocacy work and to see the change in them that, you know, these are people who have had very high skilled jobs, you know, in, in those countries. And to be able to feel that they've got purpose again and, and hearing them say that is, is kind of a massive achievement for the teams, I think. Absolutely, uh, it is. It is, and I appreciate what you're saying about it being their their story. Um, but this this is you're probably going to reach more, more people um, just to raise the awareness of this. Uh, so I do appreciate you sharing some of that. Um, so I, I I want to talk a little bit about Bevan as an organisation now and about leadership and culture because that's something. The podcast listeners are always very interested in hearing about. So you're doing all this wonderful work. But as we all know, every organization needs to have something functioning in the background to keep things ticking over and to keep people motivated and all of that. So, I mean, how, how would you describe your leadership approach? I think that um, for me, it's very much, you know, obviously I've only been at Bevan 18 months. So in terms of kind of reflecting on that and, you know, kind of past leadership experience, I think what I've always try to do is to let the experts be experts um in that you know i'm not a clinician i wasn't when i was in education i wasn't a teacher when i was in children's services i wasn't a social worker and you know and i don't need to be it really is about you know harnessing that expertise and for me as a leader you know ensuring that people have got that space resource um, and support to then be able to you know obviously do what they do best so for me, it is very much around the staff being happy and supported and looking after their well-being, particularly when you're delivering health and well-being services, and particularly when you've got a staff team who have been through that really hard front line of, of a global, global pandemic. You know, it's incredibly important for me as a leader that, that the staff are supported um, on an ongoing basis. And I think that you know, we have, I kind of have borrowed a bit of an analogy here around, um, you know, the whole bus bus analogy, and uh, which is ironic because Bevan obviously have our Bevan buses, but for <laughs> me as a leader, you know, it's very much around, you know, have we got enough people on the bus? Are they on the right seat? Does everybody know the direction we're going in, etc.? So, 
that for me was a really important um, starting point at Bevan was just to make sure that there was enough resource and people weren't feeling completely burnt out and that, you know, there was, as I say, it's kept that being able to know the services where we need to, to deploy more staff and, you know, all of those things. That's just been a really key thing coming out of the pandemic to make sure it's in place. I think that's a really interesting description of your role because there are different leadership styles and different types of leaders. So some previous guests on the podcast, if they are, for instance, running a community services, social enterprise, have been nurses at one point or have had, you know, clinical experience. But those people tend to, I mean, the one I'm thinking about likes to spend some time on the front line actually doing stuff um that's one type of leadership now i'm sure there are colleagues of that person who'd rather they didn't and focused on just enabling them so i i i like your model of leadership because the way you you've described it and i know you a bit and i know that this is the way you would be it's a very humble way of doing it and it's like i'm there to create the environment for all of you wonderful frontline you practitioners to thrive and not worry about all of the stuff that I can I can sort out for you and can and manage for you. Without that role, I think organisations really struggle. And, and actually, one of the pre- previous interviewees is Charlie Pickles, who's the director of a think tank called Reform, and they're doing some work around health. Um, I'm helping them with a bit. And one of the key things, actually, which you you would find unusual is that they've highlighted the huge reduction in managers within the NHS mm-hmm. and actually what's happening is there's a lot of money going in and nobody spending any skilled time figuring out what's the best way to allocate resources there's lots of people doing lots of things but actually there was this drive at one point oh we've got far too many managers and actually for an organization the size of the NHS you need people to to do the stuff to enable the machine to run smoothly. And if you start pulling all of that out, then it just doesn't work. So, no, I, I think your your model is is really good. And I I'm, I'm a big supporter of it. I must say that that's not to say there isn't a role for for practitioner leaders as well, but it creates a very different organization. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that um, it is that thing as well as because of my my background is so eclectic that yeah. it lends itself to that wider determinants of health and well-being aspect because you know for me fundamentally it boils down to people um and you know looking after both the people within the organization what the people the organization is for um so yeah and i think that it's very much you know kind of think good leadership is around enabling other people to lead it's about stepping out people's way giving them the tools and the framework and having you know we're doing a lot of work at the moment around you know that how do we know you know we're doing the right things and you know in terms of quality and all those aspects and you know as long as you've got ways of knowing it's working then it really is a case of Letting people. Do you know, there's something you just said there. There's something you just said there, which I didn't pick up on, which is incredibly important as well, considering the work that you do. You know, a, a general practitioner, generally speaking, that's what they will have done their entire career. Mostly. I know there are exceptions, but it's a very specialist. I mean, I, I, I know it's a general, it's a gen, I, I'm going to get the terminology wrong here. It's a generalist medical role, but it's, yeah. it's focused on solving a person's medical problem but actually Bevan is about much something much more broad than that and if you had a GP sat in your chair they might not have that wider focus no and I th- maybe not and I think no I know I'm sorry I'm not putting you on the spot I know that's a <laughs> difficult thing to, to answer I, I'm suggesting that and you can respond no and I think you know when when I you know I've had, I've had conversations with GPs in Bevan you know, when I kind of say, oh, what is it that attracted you to Bevan in the first place? One of the big things that they say is the fact that if I have a patient that walks in and actually their issues around social isolation, I know I can basically refer that person to the wellbeing team 
And yeah. they, there is, you know, whether it's a social prescriber or a peer advocate, whoever else will then step in and support that person or an occupational therapist, support that person around addressing the socialisation side of things. And I think that, you know, that that's kind of been me in a nutshell through my career is, you know, I've worked in specialist areas, but, you know, I'm not a specialist in any of it. But what I do see is people yeah. aren't about one thing. It's that whole thing of, you know, people not <laughs> You got your little dog there. <laughs> that's, that's okay. <laughs> it's actually that this is actually the second time we've we've had a dog on the podcast, so no, it's that, that's fine, that's great. <laughs> um so sorry, yeah, so getting back to that, um I think that, that that's exactly it. You know, for me, for example, when I was doing kind of children and families work, you can't work with a child and not see the adult's influence in that and yeah. You know, in terms of, you know, the whole agenda around sort of child poverty, there was huge amounts of what we did that was around actually helping people back into employment. And quite often that was the big thing that made the difference for that child because it helped that parent's mental well-being as well. So yeah. it's always been that kind of approach that I've sort of adopted is, um, you know, hugely holistic and looking at the bigger picture. Very good. Um, so my last question for you, and this is something that I ask everybody, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or a community interest company who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? I think that it's really about finding out what your passion is and your, and your drive and what's going to kind of fire you up every day. And obviously, you know, as I mentioned early on for me, it is that absolute sense of social injustice. And yeah. that could be, you know, there could be all sorts of things that that's kind of um, directed towards. So I think if you find that common thread for yourself, that's kind of really, really important. And I think there is an element then of absolutely then not being afraid to fail. You're not always going to get it right and that's okay. And, um, and I suppose, you know, there's a saying in education about a, a, a waggle, which is what a good one looks like. Um, I would always advise, you know, people who are interested in the sector or interested in um, kind of leadership within the sector to really go and kind of have a look at different organisations, have conversations with, you know, leaders at all different levels of organisations to kind of get an idea of what that's about. And I think for for me, um, I suppose it's that whole thing of you know when you see something it's about change isn't it if you see something that you feel strongly about it should it should change it needs to change um you know that to me is where sort of kind of social enterprise charity leadership comes in is um you know being able to give people a voice and listen to people I think that's incredibly powerful. There's a lot of writing about finding your why. You know, why are you doing it? Um, Simon Sinek has a book called Start With Why, I think. But it is so important that when things get tough, if your why is wishy-washy, you know, it's really difficult to tough it out. You know, why am I putting up with being treated like this by a commissioner, by by someone I'm trying to help will because my why is really strong and I will and it's so important for people to have that as their anchor or cornerstone or however you want to express it but I think that's incredibly important and it, it feels like one of those things that you can read a lot about but actually I think you've got a really good example there of where you've put it into practice and it's very impressive. Yeah and I think I, I suppose a kind of final thought on that is you know, like when we're saying in terms of that sort of leadership approach and, you know, it not being from a point of view of being a clinician or anything like that, I think one of the things that is also really important, though, is to remind yourself of your why quite often. So, for example, when I go and, you know, I, I love going to the kind of dropping on a Monday afternoon, I love going out with the outreach team, I love just being around Bevan and, yeah. you know, seeing our patients because it is incredibly humbling and, um you know, I think that that, you know, sometimes in leadership you can become removed. And I think it is really important to, you know, just remind yourself of that why, because that is your driver. And I think for people coming into that sector or being interested in, um, you know, following their passion and drive, 
it is never forget to remind yourself of the why. <laughs> Brilliant. Emma, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Andrew. It's been great. Well, there's no shortage of things to talk about from this episode. So let's start with the whole idea of the wider determinants of health. I think this is a perfect example. The services that Bevan provides are a perfect example of this. As you consider someone who is experiencing homelessness, they're going to need support around housing, mental health, accessing food from a food bank. It's a, it's a fantastic example of those wraparound services that are so essential for a lot of people. And the question is, do health commissioners get this? Is there enough join up with councils? And certainly the commissioners who commission Bevan clearly get it, at least in part. But the impression I got was that across the country, there's still work to do to ensure that this type of essential service can be commissioned on a sustainable basis. The second part of the conversation I wanted to highlight was around retaining innovations developed during the pandemic. Bevan have had great success retaining the work that they've done on increasing digital access to healthcare and also the wonderful innovation of developing peer networks within groups of people experiencing homelessness that that peer support is there, which is often much less threatening and seems to have had a great success for bringing people into the service and ensuring that their healthcare needs are, are taken care of. And finally, I wanted to talk about the different types of leader that a public service delivery organisation can have. As regular listeners to the podcast will know, some of the leaders that I speak to have a, a long history as frontline practitioners, say, if they are leading a nursing, community care, social enterprise, something like that. The nature of Bevan, given the variety of services it provides, I think it lends itself to the model of leadership which Emma brings, which is not a particular specialism in, a, in any of the areas, but has an understanding of all the areas and how they join up and understands the system within which they operate. And actually, Emma's role is creating the environment and removing the obstacles for those frontline practitioners to do their jobs. And if Emma was a specialist in one of the areas, she might be blinkered towards that particular area and not see the whole picture. I could be wrong. It's just a thought. Anyway, thank you for listening and please follow us on wherever you get your podcasts and you can find all the back episodes on the Mutual Ventures website. So thank you for listening and hope to see you next time. Bye.